I took Will with me to church this morning, and uh, he semi-dressed up and wore regular shoes and a button-up shirt, and so today when he wanted to wear his boots with that same outfit, I was like, you know what, man, go for it. We'll, we'll, we'll be all right. Uh, if you're not a Jude yet, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Jude, and if you remember, there's only one chapter in Jude, and we're going to be picking up in verse 17. And it says this, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is those who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building up yourselves in the name of, I'm sorry, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Let's pray. God, speak to us through your word. Teach us to think like you think. Teach us to believe how you call us to believe. Teach us to process everything that comes through our mind the way you would have us to. Amen. So Kelly and I took the kids to the pool a couple weeks or a week or so ago now, and man, they were they were all over the place. Well, not really all over the place. They were all over me, and I'm like, man, leave me alone. Uh, the joke that I often say when they do that is. I'm going to change my name, to which they reply, to what? The point is, I'm not telling you what my new name is. Leave me alone. And we go back and forth, and they, they then just start making up names and don't pick on that I'm just not going to answer them. So they were doing that, and they were trying to, uh, they were all over me, and I put Ellie in a little baby float, and I'm kind of holding her there. And Kelly had given them this new big donut float that I had to blow up, so I'm trying to blow that up. And I'm trying to watch Ellie, because even though she's in the float, she can still lean over and hit the water. And, of course, she's a baby. She's trying to lick the water and drink the water, and she can't. And so it's just coughing up everywhere. And uh, so I'm trying to blow it up and watch her. And the kids are just like, oh, is it ready yet? Is it re-? I'm like, you see what I see. Like, you know it's not. And they just keep going. They keep going. And I keep looking. I'm going, leave me alone. When I am done, I will tell you. And they would not leave me alone. And Will, Will's, like, all over top of me. I was like, Will. Get away from me. Of course, he stays there laughing. Will, I'm going to count to 15. And if you are still near me, I'm going to grab you and throw you as far as I can. And then I proceeded to keep blowing up while I counted to 15 in my head and gave him no warnings. And when I hit 15, I dropped the float, dropped Ellie, I reached over and grabbed Will, and I threw him across the pool as far as I could. I was standing in the middle of the section at Whispering Pines, and I got him halfway into the forefoot, or four, four and a half foot. I threw him 15, 20 feet easily, and I chunked him. And that man comes up, and water just all in his face. You actually did it. (laughs) You know how he can barely talk as it is with all the water in his face. And I'm like, yes, I did it. Are you surprised that I did it? Why are you? I told you I was going to do it. Why are you acting surprised now? Apparently, he didn't take me my word, and I was true to my word. Andrew and, I have, Andrew and I have a philosophy. If you give your word, keep your word. For good, bad, I'm going to spank you. I'm going to give you a, whatever it is. I'm going to give you a prize reward. If I tell you something, I'm going to do it so that you know you can believe me. 
I gave him a warning, and somehow, of all the things that I've done in that nature, he still was surprised that I did it. I'll tell him sometimes, I'm going to push you down, and then I'll push him down. You know I keep my word. Believers have this, uh, have this, this thing where we're shocked when things happened, like we didn't know who was coming. The apostles have given us lots of warnings about what's coming. Jesus has given us lots of warning about what things are going to be life in these de- like in these days. And, and we're responding to them like, can you believe what happened? And I'm sitting back a lot of times going, did you not know that's what was going to happen? It's going to get difficult. It's going to be bad. It's going to be hard for believers. There's going to be scoffers that are going to come at us and mess with us because we have faith. And it's going to get worse than it already is. It's going to get a lot worse. I'm doing my own slideshow tonight. Point number one is that we need to know what's coming. We have warnings about what's coming. And they're telling us that scoffers are going to come. And the reality is this right now. It would seem logical to me that if there's a group of people who do not believe as I believe, they would just leave me alone to believe like I want to believe. You don't need to come in and attack me for what I believe because you think it's some fairy tale or whatever language that you want to use. If I believe different, you go about your way, let me go about mine, and we'll be okay. But the world is just not not believing in God. They are in attack against people who believe in God. And I believe the reality is that they are at war with God whether they know it or not, and that's what comes of it. I can't tell you why they do what they do, but that's the reality. And I know it's the reality because Jesus said that's what's going to happen. There are going to be people who come in and mess up things. Why? Because Satan is a master deceiver. He knows how to mess believers up. And they take all kinds of form of people coming to church and being liars and they're deceived. Some of them know what they're doing and taking advantage of people. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are happening. Nigeria, as poor as it is, like some five of the richest people in the whole country are pastors who are preaching a prosperity gospel. They have to know. At some point, they have to know that what they're teaching is fake and not real, and they see the evidence of it not working out, but they keep pushing because they're getting money for it. And then there are people who just hate God. There are people who believe that he's not real, and they're coming in and are going to mess with us and rob us of our joy. They're going to rob us of our peace because they are working, whether they know it or not, with Satan. It is coming. Anybody in here a basketball fan? Who likes basketball in here? Um, some of you like, I know Andrew likes playing, but he doesn't really care to watch. I know some people love watching. Um, who likes college ball? That's the one I prefer. Any NBA fans? A couple NBA fans? I really don't like the NBA anymore. Um, really, I've never really liked the NBA. I feel like most of the season they don't really care till playoff time. And so it's just kind of like, if you're that good, be that good. And then there's like the drama and the rules, and I don't like it all. What I do like about NBA right now is seeing which Carolina player is going to win championships. Justin Jackson just got one. Um, also, Tim Post is the same thing from a guy from Virginia just got one. Um, Malcolm, I don't even know who it was. Anyway, I don't care. Tim, I really don't care right now. I don't know if you're watching right now, but, but you know, we, we, that's where I like basketball and NBA, just to see what Carolina players are doing right now. But I do like some old school basketball, and I recently watched a documentary on Larry Bird. Now, that guy does not get the credit for as good as he was. 
Uh, John, you ever watch any old reels of him? That, that, man is, that man is amazing. The Hick from French Lick is one of his nicknames. But his other nickname that I think is the best nickname in, in the NBA is Larry Legend. That's a fantastic nickname right there, man. And he lived up to it. That dude loved to brag. He loved to talk about it. But one thing that I love that he did was he would go onto the basketball court and as he gets up in your face, he would tell you the exact move that he was about to do and then do it. You can't stop me. You can't stop me. And he would just do anything that he wanted to do, and he was just hanging over their head that there's nothing that's going to happen. One of my favorite ones was he walked, he, was, uh, he got ready, and he walked in front of the opposing bench. He's like, yeah, tonight feels like a 37-pointer. You know, that was a lot high scoring game then. And in the third quarter, he made his 37th point and checked himself out of the game. And just stopped playing the rest of the game. Like, he did what he was going to do, and he basically hung it over and said, you can't do anything about it. The warnings that Jesus give us are not those kinds of warnings. It's not for no reason. It's just not so we can use words to fill paper. He gave us warnings so that we could be prepared. If you know someone is about to swing at you, you put your arms up and you block. You step away. You run from what's happening. Either way, if we know what's coming, we can be prepared and then stand against it. As believers looking at how Satan attacks us, we have to know what is coming. And by the way we're responding to the way the world is operating right now, we have no clue what Scripture says about how things are going to be. We would be more prepared, and we wouldn't be so surprised. I think one of the problems is we don't know who we are. I talk about this a lot. I feel like this is something that I struggle with for so long that I keep bringing it up over and over again. As believers, we have to know who we are. You, as an individual, you cannot settle for the church around you to be strong enough and for the church, the local church, your local church culture to give you identity as a believer. You have to know what God is calling you to in Scripture. You have to know how you are identified. Where do we see that in this passage? You have to, I think if you back up to the very beginning and look at verse 1, he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Christ Jesus. And then throughout the rest of the passage, he keeps referring, beloved, beloved, beloved. He's reminding us who we are. We are called, specifically by name, as an individual. God has called us out. He didn't just make a blanket call and took who come. He called you out by name as an individual. You are known by the living God. Beloved in God the Father. How many people struggle with self-worth? If you only knew that you were beloved by God and could set your mind on that, knowing how God loves us, would we struggle the same way? Absolutely not. Now, there might be times where we have doubts and there might be other areas that it pops up, but overwhelmingly, if we would receive this truth and know how God loves us, it would change how we think about ourselves. The one that I would love to preach an entire passage on, we are kept for Jesus Christ. The things that we are called to do, what we're called to do with our life, what we should be spinning ourselves is not for ourselves. It's not for the sake of the world. It's not for simple things. We are called. We are called out, kept for Jesus Christ. 
were used for his purposes. In this section here, we see it, beloved, beloved. We have to know who we are. Years ago, I was at the warehouse, and I was talking to a young man. He was always in trouble, nothing major, running his mouth, would never back down from anything, would never use common sense on anything, would always just have issue after issue. And um, we had a lot of conversations. I just couldn't get through to him. And I looked at him, and I was like, hey, man, look, you're going to be flipping burgers the rest of your life? Because what I wanted him to see was the things that he was doing was going to prevent him at some point from having a possible future. Because the direction you're headed is going to be to get in trouble with the law, and it's going to really limit what you're going to be doing. At the very least, you're not doing anything productive to actually take yourself somewhere. And I wanted to give him this long perspective of his life so he could kind of, you know what, my actions right now do matter for my future. I wanted him to catch that so that it might change some of his actions because the don't do this wasn't working for him. I was like, hey, man, look, you're going to be flipping burgers the rest of your life. Is that your goal? Is that what you want? Do you want to do just a, a simple thing because you're, you're cutting yourself short right now? I said, do you want this? He goes, is that what you're going to be doing? Yeah, probably. And I said, what? Is that what you're going to be doing? He goes, yeah. I was like, why? That's all anybody ever tells me I'm going to be doing. And he believed whatever people said for him. And he saw himself of having so little value and so little opportunity that he didn't care what his actions did because they didn't mean anything. But if we see ourselves going somewhere, our actions reflect that. So if we know we're going to try to get into a good college, what do we do when we're in high school? Work hard to get good grades, right? Do your homework. I was going to PCC. I didn't try that hard. It didn't matter that I, I didn't have to have these things. If I'd have had a better perspective, I'd realize that I could have went to PC and then got a scholarship if I would actually tried. If we have a long-term perspective, if we know our destination, what we do, what our actions are, will change. I would love to be skinny. You know the problem with that is? Bacon cheeseburger. Lettuce, tomato, mayo, pickle, dupes. Dukes. Next level is dukes and toasted, toasted buns. That's just like next level stuff there. The other problem is tacos. Anything Mexican food, really. I mean, take your pick. There's a whole list of things right there. The other, the other part is uh, exercise. <laughs> exercise is another tough one. I played basketball with Casey and Andrew the other morning. By lunchtime, we played for like an hour in the morning. By lunchtime, I was taking ibuprofen. And then at night, I took it again. That night, I was... Had an ice pack on my back. Man, why do I want to do this again? Maybe being fat's not so bad. Sometimes we say we want something, but our actions aren't taking us there. If we know who we are, if we know who God has called us to be, our actions will be reflected by that. Believers, we have an identity crisis. We are far too often trying to mimic the world and what the world is offering. And we are not free to pursue what God has for us. We are so busy holding on to the world, we're not free to receive what God has. We have to know who we are. How are we going to do that? Point number three, I think we have to know the faith.
Man. There's so many evidences that we don't know the faith. Choir, how many times in Scripture is, are we warned to not be thrown around by a false doctrine? Tons of times. Why? Because we don't know the faith. We don't know who God is. And that's how we believe every little thing that comes along. It's because we have no knowledge. We have no foundation of Scripture to lean on to say this is right and this is wrong. If we, if we know Scripture, when a false idea comes up, it's easy to go, yeah, that's dumb. That's temporary. That's a fad. We'll see this one go. And the more studied we are, we can look at some new modern trend and we can see that this is nothing new. It's a new package for one of the devil's old schemes. The same things in the same ways come up over and over again, and they're all vanity. They're all appealed to our flesh. They all say, put you at the center is really what they have boiled down to a lot of times. We have to know the faith. I have a couple friends. They're actually not very good friends. They're pretty, they're a jerk sometimes. Y'all know them. It's Stephen and Stephen uh, Ori. They're, they're mean. They like to text me out of context scripture to get on my nerves. They know exactly what they're doing. And every time they go places and see passages out of context, they'll take a picture and text it to me and then laugh. Specifically, Philippians 4.13, which says, what, Jake, you know this too about me, right? What does Philippians 4.13 say? We know it well. Somebody say it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, that's a great passage, and Philippians is my favorite book. And if you read Philippians 4.13 in context, it is a beautiful passage. But it does not mean that we're going to win a football game by you kicking a field goal. It does not mean anything of that nature. And why it is on so many random objects in Bible bookstores, I cannot begin to tell you. Tim bought us a little staff a couple years ago. It's a reminder for us to keep trekking, to keep going, to keep pushing. I got the one that said Philippians 4.13 on it. I almost beat him with it. No. All right. So that's the background, right? I love Philippians 4.13. It does not apply to every situation in your life. Calm down. So that background, we were talking about camp. We were talking about taking refuge in God. And I think that it's a parallel picture to the idea of being in Christ, of staying there, staying with him and abiding with him. And uh, so I made it my, uh, Amy helped me make a shirt that says in Christ uh, because I wanted that reminder. Um, I was talking about it for two weeks in a row, uh, every morning for a little bit, and I just spent some time with it. And, uh, and I just wanted that reminder to put that shirt on. Or my, are my actions reflecting my position in Christ? Was really what I'm preaching to myself by putting it on. So I put that shirt on, and I wear it to uh, Walmart because I had to go out. I, this is one of the first, one of the only times I went out to uh, Walmart when I was at camp. Now, um, how does Scripture identify believers? Andrew gave us one way, belonging to the way, right? It does not use Christian a lot in Scripture, three times or less, but it refers to believers as being in Christ. You know how many times? Over 300. That sounds like something that we should know as believers a lot, right? If, it's, if this idea is used 300 times in the New Testament, it must be important. So believers should identify, I believe, more as in Christ than Christian. Because it tells us our position, and it's not a cheap label that we can put on. And it also reminds us to stay in that position. So I put my shirt on, it says, in Christ, and I'm walking to Walmart, and I'm walking, going uh, to the, I was buying some water balloons, what I ended up having to buy, and, uh, and a guy points at me and goes, and I can do all things through Christ. And I was like, 
Now, I'm not mad at that guy. I'm not. I mean, like, he was relating to me that we are both in Christ. So I have no issues with that. And I was actually glad that he spoke to me and said something. And it was great. But there are 300 mentions of in Christ in Scripture. Why are you quoting Philippians 4.13 right now? Why are you picking that one? Because we have reduced the Christian faith to a label and a handful of verses that we often use out of context. And we have no knowledge of the foundation of God's word. And it says so much about it. And the pastor that tells us to do this, it tells us to build yourselves up in the faith. That's where I get this idea of know your faith. If we're going to do that, you know the first step. Know God's word. Know God's word. That's a little small, sorry. Know God's word. We don't. Man, as, as people who supposedly love the word, we love to hold it up and say that we love it, but the reality shows that we don't actually love it. It would be like me saying, I love being healthy all the time. Yeah, Brett, you keep saying that, but you are not getting any skinnier. We can say we love the word of God, but there's no evidence that we really are taking in God's word over and over again. How do we know that? One idea is in uh, the things that we sing, the things that we say, right? There's a bluegrass song I'm going to pick on today, and it's called, I'm Using My Bible as a Roadmap. Anybody ever heard that song? Um, it's, old, it's an old school song. It's actually from the 50s, but it's one of those things that gets played over and over again. And in bluegrass, everybody steals everybody's music. But it says, I'm using my Bible as a roadmap. That's not a bad idea, right? It's telling you what to do, where to go. And it says, goes on in the course today, the Ten Commandments tell me what to do. Solid. You know, that's good advice right there. Next line says, the twelve disciples are my road signs. What exactly does that mean? <laughs> and it's not very clear. And I think if you really twist it and work with it, you can make it mean something good. But... Why fight to make it mean something good when you could just go to Psalm 119 and see what the Word of God actually says is going to do for you? Why are we working to make it fit? Because we don't, it, it's, it's an idea and a concept. We love the Word of God in theory, but not in reality. And it plays out when we do things like this. Another line goes on to say, the children of Israel used it too. <laughs> Stop, pause, hit the brakes right there. They did not have the Bible. <laughs> the Bible was not written then. It was being written. Moses was writing the first five books of the Bible, right? They didn't have those first five. They didn't have the Torah to do it. How do you fit a dumb line like this in a song? It's because you don't have a real understanding of God's word. You just don't. We have to know God's word. One thing that we did in Bridge this year is we spent some time in Psalm 119 because I wanted them to see what the word, and this is what we asked. What is the word of God trying to accomplish in your life? Or what is God using the word, his word to accomplish in your life? All right, so if we go to God's word and we don't know what it's going to be doing, we don't know what change he's going to make, let's look at his word and see what he says he's going to do in his word. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to his, your word. So God wants to use his word to keep us pure. Psalm 119 is entirely about that. We must know God's word. Next. We need to pray in the Holy Spirit. Let me back up for a second here. Know God's word. 
I actually preached the same passage this morning. I preached about this for like 20 minutes on that one point. But I believe here at East Rock, we spent a lot of time talking about this over and over again. But I still don't believe that we've had a lot of effort and energy pursuing it like we need to. So we understand it in concept, but personally, myself, I need this more to know God's word more, to spend more time in it. And I know it's a reality for us, too, but I'm moving on to get to some other points. But we know that in theory, let us make it a reality. Let us put a plan in place where it is going to happen. Not just say, I want to read God's, I want to read one chapter a day before I turn the TV on. Bring in accountability. You bring in accountability for exercise. You bring in accountability for diet. Bring in accountability that you stay in God's word every single day. So now moving on to the next one. It says pray in the Holy Spirit. We all too often make prayer an add-on to our faith and not a main staple of our faith. Prayer has to be a major part of our faith. It ties into the last one, but we need to learn to pray in accordance with Scripture. I think about this most when I pray for my kids. Because I find myself praying the same things over and over for my kids. But I also don't find myself praying the fullness of what God wants for them. Does that make sense? I set up for the same passages, and I got a book to help me with this, and it's still sitting on the shelf. But I want my kids to know the the fullness of God. I want my kids to be consumed by God's love. I want my kids to just press into the Father. I don't want them to just be safe. I don't want them to just be successful. I actually believe that a lot of times what parents spend praying for their kids might be the very things that are keeping them away from God. We have to make sure that our prayers are in accordance with Scripture. Is that actually what God wants for them. My kids have a bad habit of asking me for things that I don't want to give them. And sometimes when my kids would go, you've not given me anything today, and I keep asking, but you've given that one everything they've asked for. They're asking for the right things. They're asking for things that I want to give them. You keep asking for TV and snacks, and you've been bad and have had too much sugar already. I don't want to give you these things. They're getting things for me because they're asking for the right things. They're asking for things that I want to give them, time with them, activities with them, cuddles with them. They're getting, I'm not being mean to you and not giving you because you're at, we are often asking God for things that he has no desire to give us. So our prayers need to be in accordance with the word. It goes back to knowing God's word. As we spend time in it, we're able to then pray in accordance with the word. Next. We need to pray in prolonged periods of solitude. If you've been hanging out with me lately, this is something that I've I've been trying to press into personally, something I've been reading about. Chuck Swindoll says this is one of the hardest things you could possibly do. It's just having prolonged periods of silence where you eliminate distraction and just get quiet before God. Personally, I believe that a lot of times we hear truth, and even if we want to believe truth, have you ever had the struggle that it's sometimes hard to believe and accept that truth? Even if you want to believe it and want it to be a reality for you and ingrained in your mind, and I personally believe that in times of prolonged periods of solitude, it's where God makes that transition from the word being in our heads 
to it being in our hearts, so to speak. We can marinate on it, we can chew on it, we can process it, and then we can own it as in, our, in our core. If you look at the life of David, David did some awesome things. He had some awesome seasons of his life. And if you take a step back, you would see that in every, right before he became king, he spent a year living in a cave. And God used that time of silence to transform David into the man that he needed to be to become king. I believe that God uses prolonged periods of silence to take truth that is in our head and make it become a foundational thing where our actions are changed by it. If you're like me, you can't just hear a word and go, okay, it's going to change everything forever now. I wish it worked that way. But getting along before God is where a lot of that change happens. I've had a lot of conversations with people. A lot of them go, man, this is, this is difficult. Yes. As I said, Chuck Swindoll says this is probably one of the hardest things that you will do. To learn how to silence the, the things that would distract you. It's a discipline that you have to push into and learn and practice. And the first several times is going to be a disaster. That's okay. Learn to practice and do it over and over again until it becomes something that you can do. It's something that you will never find time for. You have to make time for it. And you have to sacrifice other things for. It's times like this where we need to go to our spouses and say, hey, I need you to watch all the kids. For families like us, Liggett's, Garbs, when you got a bunch of them, it becomes a little bit harder thing to do to ask the other person to watch all of them. But we have to do that for each other. It's also one of those things we have to go to each other and go, how can I make this a reality for you? Can I take on something for you so that you're able to do this? We have to put ourselves in a position to be in front of God and hear his voice. There's more to it than that, but those are two that I wanted to bring up tonight. Next, it tells us that we are going to keep yourself. Oh, go back one. Keep yourself in the love of God. We realize that it takes some action on our part to do this. We need to keep ourselves in the love of God, position ourselves to walk with him. I won't spend a whole lot of time going into that. Maybe in Life Together this week we can dive into that more. I think that's the picture of abiding, taking refuge right there. We are to wait on the mercy of Jesus. I think this is a beautiful picture right here. I think one of the hardest things we can do is to sit around and wait and wait for God's ways and our ways. We want to solve things quick in our mind, and we're called to wait on the mercy of Jesus. I think we're called to keep our eyes on the prize. That's what it, if we know God's word, we know what's about to happen. It makes it easier for us to wait, but it's us keeping our focus on what's going to happen. I think that's what it's getting at right there. I want to spend a little bit more time talking about these last two. Have mercy on those who doubt. Man, we love personal mercy and grace, don't we? Andrew, I've been loving listening to Jess Ray's new song, Grace and Mercy. It's a fantastic way to dwell on that idea over and over again and just how important it is. And we love when grace and mercy is extended to us. We love it. We always want it. We always accept it. But we always don't have 
a testimony of always giving it. We are not always as merciful to the people around us when they mess up as we like to receive mercy. Those who doubt that around us, the believers who are weaker in their faith, who are struggling with these ideas, we don't look down, we don't talk down to them, we don't hope that things happen to them. Here's the real way to put it right here. You ready? Do we want the same for them as God wants for us? Are we mirroring God's heart toward them? At the same rate that we're asking God for grace and mercy, are we offering that to the people around us in the same way? So I think it puts us in a position to not sit around and wait for somebody to come to us, but it puts us in a position to then to go and be interactive in each other's life. So I can't sit and wait for you to tell me what's wrong. If I recognize that something's wrong, I have to go to you and ask questions. Now, in a husband-wife relationship, we get that, right? If, if our spouses, we know we have to go to them and, and, and care for them. I think we have the same responsibility in the body of Christ. So it calls, is, I think it calls us to press in, to not let surface-level answers be what we settle for. Now, my brother is very weird. He's hilarious and funny in some ways. If you don't get a sense of humor, like Kelly doesn't get a sense of humor as much. My brother's funny. My, Kelly's like, he's so weird. And so uh, he was walking around one time. He's like, you know, we ask people how we're doing, and nobody actually cares for the right answer. I'm going to start answering that question honestly. But as he does it, he does it with the same passing whatever attitude. How are you doing? Great. How are you doing? Horrible. And he just keeps walking. How are you doing? My knee's horrible. I can't barely walk right now. And he just keeps walking. And he starts answering honest, but in a way where nothing much can change. We know we're not okay. We know the people around us aren't always okay. And why we don't go to each other and ask for help quicker? Well, it's because we have to be vulnerable, don't we? And I don't want to invite you into that part of my life. I'll be honest. I don't want to tell you that I'm not perfect. And I want your image of me to be higher than it really is. Higher, I want your praise of me to be more than I actually deserve. So if I come and tell you that I'm struggling this way, I have to admit that I'm not always doing great. And a lot of times if we do that, there's a high risk that we'll hurt, get hurt. If we expose ourselves in that way, what's that person going to do with it? We have to get honest and go, I want this for me and I want it for you. And at some point I have to take a leap of faith and be vulnerable to cherish this gift that God has given us called the body. Andrew had a conversation a couple weeks ago. Um, I threw one of those things out there. I'm like, man, I've been struggling. I've been at wit's end for a little while about this. I don't want to throw that. I don't want to tell them that. I don't want to be honest about that. But as a good brother, he encouraged me and doesn't bring it up and say something bad about me. <laughs> he laughed, tweeted, I'm not on Twitter. Ugh, that's the problem. <laughs> We have to have mercy on those who doubt. 
I want us, I want that to be the nature of this church. One thing I love about this church is I think we've started that direction. I really think we have. I think that we're further along than a lot of other churches are, if I'm honest. There's no uh, idea that you have to be a certain level of perfection while you're here. Nobody cares, right? Nobody cares if you mess up. No, nobody's going to say a word if you walk in and you're dressed different or dirty. Nobody cares. If you come in wearing clothes, we're happy. I think we've got a good start. I think we're mirroring the heart of God. I just don't think we've taken it far enough to where if you come to me and say something, man, we'll have a great conversation. I think the next step for us as a congregation is to then press into each other and be more intentional about it. And then we have to actually become more aware of who's around us so that we can have those conversations. Man, one thing that I love about this church is we love each other, right? So as soon as church ends, you're going to see a couple things happen. There's going to be a couple groups that just go right together. You'll see several Life Together groups go and start catching up with each other. Why? Because we like each other. That's fantastic, right? We also have to then take a step back and look around us and see who's not in my direct circle and then be intentional to bring them in. Because there is, and the good thing about it is there's no idea predominantly in this church we're trying to leave somebody out. But we like each other, so we come together, and sometimes it's hard to penetrate into that. Does that make sense? So we have to learn to be intentional to go to other people to create opportunities for these things to happen. That's not a put-down at all. That's just the next step of growth, if that makes sense. I love how we love on each other. Let's spread and widen our circle of love for each other. Don't be like my wife. When she first started coming, what did you do after church when we first started coming? Boy, she hit that door running. I had to chase her down to make her stay. And I did. Then I married her. We have to be intentional to open up our circles a little bit and bring people in so we have time and opportunity to have mercy with each other. And lastly... We have to hate sin. Where do I get that at? He says, uh, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Hate sin so much that you just hate even all the consequences of it. A lot of us want to be freed from sin. And we, we, we start a process of saying, God, free me from this or let me have, let me have victory over this while never having a mindset change about what we're struggling with. Ignatius of Antioch says this, it is impossible for a man to be freed from the habit of sin before he hates it, just as it is impossible to receive forgiveness before confessing his trespasses. What does it mean for us to hate sin? It means that we have to begin to think about sin like God tells us to think about sin. We often want to think about the problems and issues of the world, how it makes sense to us. And we take whatever mindset that we want to think about an issue instead of going to God and his word and saying, God, how should I think about this thing? There's all kinds of ways where this plays out. When we look at our lives personally and go, man, I don't want to be this way. Or, or let me, let me, I know this needs to change. I'm going to change this thing 
but we don't mind when we live in that sin. We don't hate it. It's never going to change. So we have to then begin to say, God, renew my mind. Give me a new way of thinking about what you're saying. It's the idea of 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin. What does that word confess mean? Agree with God. The, the, the word literally means say the same word as God. Homo legeo, let's say the same word as God. Let us agree. It's no confession in the way that we think about confession. God, I've done this. Th- oh, Brett, really? You messed up? Thanks for telling me, Brett. I didn't know that. It's not that idea of confession. God has already cast judgment on sin, and he's calling us to agree with him about the nature of that sin. Where we love these ideas a lot of times, God is saying, man, you need to think different about this. You need to think like I think about it. And if you think about that like I think about it, you would hate that. And if you actually hated it, you wouldn't have any room for it in your life. The most disgusting drink on the face of this planet is root beer. Oh, it's horrible. Peter's ready to fight. Now, my kids tell me all the time they don't like stuff. I don't like this. And you love root beer? I'll give all my root beer I ever get to you. I'll never get any because it's disgusting. My kids a lot of times say, I don't like this. And I say, that's all we got. Okay, I'll eat it. <laughs> Do you really not? That's not what you prefer in the moment, but you don't hate it. I hate root beer. The last time I drank a sip of root beer, I was in my room. I was in eighth grade. I was in our computer room in my house. My best friend was over. We had a bit of hot pepper, and my mouth was on fire. And I reached over and grabbed his Coke. And I grabbed it, and I poured it up, and root beer flooded into my mouth. And as fast as it came in, twice as fast as it came out, all over the computer screen, all over the wall, it was everywhere. I hate root beer. It has no place in my mouth. I would rather my mouth burn all the, with that root beer, with that uh, jalapeno pepper that I bit into that I know was there. I'd rather my mouth be on fire for an hour than drink any root beer to calm it. I hate it. And if your mindset is that you hate something, you will have no room for it in your life. We have to have the mindset where we hate root beer. No, wait, that's not right. (laughs) we have to have the mindset where we hate sin in the same way I hate root beer. That was what I was really going to say. I hate root beer, man. It's just the worst. Also hate root beer. That's the point of tonight. Hate root beer. If you take anything else away tonight, take that one away, right? No. Take away. We have to hate sin. How are we going to hate sin? Think about it the same way God thinks about it. We have to take on his mindset in ourselves. We do that by the renewing of our mind. We do that by knowing his word. That's where he will reveal these things to us. But look, this is not a heavy thing where it's like, do better, do better, be better, be perfect. It's not a call to do that. It's a call to be free from the sinner life so that we're free to receive more of what God has in store for us. I had a good time last Wednesday night talking about sin. And typically the idea of sin is that we want to like, come down on people and go, stop sinning, stop sinning, and it becomes a heavy conversation. What I tried to lead in conversation this past Wednesday was this idea of, look, let us be free from sin so that we can receive more of what God actually has for us. Sin robs us of peace. Do you know how much we pursue peace in this world in different ways? 
And a lot of times it's sin that's keeping us from getting it. And I'm not talking about just doing bad stuff. It's also the sin that is stopping us from pursuing what God has for us. So it's not just always engaged in this tough battle of giving bad things away. It's let's repent from just being so busy we have no time to listen to God. The things that are keeping us from embracing all that God says he has for us, that he wants us to have. Man, we are called to persevere. We're called to persevere. We're called to press in and not give up on this faith. But you know what the reality is? We have no idea how the devil's working because we've not been in God's word. We have no idea what God wants from us. We don't know who we are. And we don't know what the faith is that God has called us to because we settle for mediocrity. We settle for, a little, we settle for being better than our neighbor as Christians instead of embracing all that God has in store for us. If you want to persevere, Put the work in. I want to be skinny. I'm not willing to put the work in right now. If we want to persevere in our faith, put the work in. Take the necessary steps that you need and bring somebody in with you and go, help me do this. Pick somebody to be an accountability partner. There might be one of these things you need to focus on first. And bring somebody into that. There's even an element where if you say it out loud, I feel like it's more of a reality. Even if that person isn't great at holding you accountable, if you even just let somebody in on what your plans are, it can become more of a reality for you. At least potentially can. I want every single one of us to persevere. I don't want to see any of us walk away from the faith. I've been walking with the Lord since I was 11 years old. I got really serious about my walk when I was about 18, 17, 18, right around there. And in in those years, I had my brother, my two best friends. Three of them, all three of them answered the call to ministry why I resisted answering that call. We actually were all hanging out with Tim at the time, and Tim's like, look, don't take this calling lightly. Don't answer it quick. Keep pursuing the Father before you make this call. Those three answered the call to go into ministry. None of them walked with the Lord. I've seen far too many people believe the lies of the devil. Believe that what this world has to offer is good enough. And choose any other thing besides Jesus. Whether it's anger. Whether it's self-pity. Whether it's this new enlightenment or being woke about something. I've got friends that I've seen walk away from this faith because they believe the lie of the devil. The devil isn't doing anything new. He might package his lies in some new thing, a new idea. It's not new. His lies are anything but Jesus. 
I want you to experience the fullness of what God has to offer you. I don't want you to just be a, looking, a better looking Christian. I don't care about that. I don't care about you getting better at this faith thing where you look more and more like I look. I don't care about that. God, Jesus said, I've come to give you life and give it more abundantly. We have a wrong idea of what life is, and I want you to experience that, and I want you to keep experiencing that, and I want you to enjoy the Father for the rest of your life and share that hope with this community and invite them in. I want to see us carry this faith out and you to enjoy it till you die and go to be with the Father. I don't want any of us to walk away, but we will not drift. You will not get there accidentally. If you do not press into God, if you do not call on the Spirit and talk to God regularly, if you do not have a knowledge of His Word, you will fall away. How many examples do you want me to give you? Be honest about the people in your circles. You have more stories than you want to share. We've seen it time and time again. And here's the reality. We won't drift there. We won't. And if you're not putting in the work, you won't see the results. Let's pray. Father, we would never see the end of your goodness. The things that you have in store for us is better than anything we can possibly imagine. They're not based on who we are, but on who you are. We're asking for good things based on what this world we've seen in this world. But Father, you're bigger than this world. The things that you have for us are much greater. God, the problem is I have a taste that is set on the things of this world. I know I do personally. I know I enjoy the flesh too much. But God, I know that's a poor trade-off. I know it's a poor trade-off. God, help me desire. Help me to desire you over this world. Help me to stop being lazy and have a mindset change where I press into you and all that you have for me. God, help me to see the temptations of the flesh where the devil is offering me this very week and empower me to say no. Help me to see the things that are happening before they happen and be able to withstand the attacks because we know they're coming. God created me new desires. Amen.